0: Ever wanted to save some money, retire in your early 30s, and then spend the rest of your life traveling the world with your spouse? Eh, Maybe that's just me. (laughs) If it is just me, skip today's show. If you're interested in at least conceptually finding out how that might be possible, enjoy today's interview with a couple who has done exactly that. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets. I'm your host and guide through the financial swamps that we all walk through every day. And today's show is an interview with Jeremy and Winnie, who are travelers, writers, early retirees. They retired in their 30s and are now traveling the world together. their website is called go curry cracker and they are they write quite a bit they put out a lot of content and it is all helpful valuable content and in today's show you are going to enjoy hearing at the beginning their story and then you're going to enjoy hearing some information as far as some of the actual strategies that they have put into place to be able to allow them to retire at a very early age i think you're really going to benefit a lot Uh, And at the end, uh, I mean, all throughout, obviously, I'm going to encourage you to go over and check out their writing. Some of the content is really great in a written format as well, especially when we get into some of the nitty-gritty with taxes and financial planning stuff as well. Go and check out some of the information that they have published on uh, on on their website as far as that information. As you listen to this, I am currently in New Orleans, Louisiana, or at least I hope I am. This is a show is pre scheduled long before that. So, hopefully, that's where I am <laughs> at the FinCon uh, session. So, uh, all these shows are pre recorded. I hope you enjoy them. If you have any questions, shoot me a note. Joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com is my email address. One quick note uh, Jeremy was in Taiwan, and the connection, the Skype connection that we were on, got a little bit funky towards the middle of the interview. And I let it go for a little bit, and then I And so you should be able to just pick out the words, but then it got so bad, and I waited for a time, and then I I interrupted him and paused the recorder, interrupted him, and then asked him to reset. So then after we reset, then it got better. So don't give up in disgust uh, in the middle when it it gets a little bit um, mixed up. I think you'll appreciate it. Just keep on listening, and then the connection will get better. Enjoy the interview. So Jeremy, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate your being with me.
2: Right
0: on. Thanks, Joshua. So, thank you for the work that you've done to build out your website uh, at gocurrycracker.com. I have enjoyed your writing over the last couple of years, and I think that uh, it can't possibly be overstated how valuable travelogues and information like yours is for people who are looking to pursue uh, a similar path. It's such a wonderful thing that today we can we can access the information so easily of other people's stories. Would you share with us just a little bit about your background and your story, uh, especially as it relates to your journey through, uh, through and to financial independence?
2: Sure. So, um, my wife and I we, we retired in our thirties and we started uh, traveling around the world. Um, we we started that um, about two years ago, and the whole the whole savings path, you know, from when we decided really that that, uh, early retirement and permanent travel were something we we're interested in, it took us about 10 years from when we formally committed to the plan until, until the day that I submitted my resignation. And since then we've been you know, slowly moving from place to place. <clears throat> we worked our way through Mexico and Central America and we're in Asia now. And, uh, We kind of started the blog a little bit to keep in touch with with friends and family and also to kind of uh, answer the question that I got from a lot of my coworkers about, you know, you can really do that. How did you do it? And also to share kind of what we thought was a whole when we were looking for information or just how much does it cost to do it? And so we publish, you know, all of our expenses on a monthly basis, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: every penny we spend.
0: Yeah, that's that's probably one of the most helpful resources. I know that I, I'm interested in long term travels, you know, taking a year abroad type of thing. And the most valuable thing in the world is when you can find someone who accurately tracks their expenses and says, "Here's what we, well, here's what it actually cost us," and so you can have an idea uh, of what you need to put together your your adventure. So, from the beginning, this was a plan. Did you bumble into it, or, or how did? Most people, if you said you retired in your early 30s that, and you said it was a 10-year plan, that would mean sometime in your early to mid-20s you came up with the idea. I've rarely met someone in the early mid-20s that's working towards early retirement. How did you come up with the idea?
1: Well, there
2: was, there was some time when uh, like the phase from basically graduating from college, paying off student loans um, until the, the, the time when the plans started, I was pretty much a workaholic. You know, I was doing uh, 60 plus hours a week, um, plus, you know, take home work and so on. And the day, you know, a, a time came when uh, I had an opportunity to take kind of my first adult vacation.
1: Mm-hmm. And it,
2: it, three weeks long. The first week, I, I really just like checked email, thought about work, exchanged email with people at work. The second week, I started to kind of think, you know, hey, this is, this is kind of nice. And by the end of week three, I was asking, you know, how can I do this every day for the rest of my life? <laughs> right. So I uh, kind of went back home and started you know, asking, asking questions. Just, well, how much would it cost? How would I do it? But, you know, is this realistic? And um, you know, I, I wrote sort of, it came out to be roughly like a 50-page 50 50 page business plan at that time of how to get there.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think if I were to go back and look at it right now, I would think, you know, wow, I was a very naive person, right? Yeah. But uh, it got me started, and from from there, it was it was very much an active process. You know, how do I, how do I save a greater and greater percentage of income, and how do I invest it? Uh, what about medical care? You know, just all the kind of the the questions that people ask, and you know, you know, can I ever go back to work? What would that look like? And, how much money do I need? And just over that ten-year period, as the the money accumulated, uh, the, the knowledge accumulated as well.
0: Did you find any books or mentors or resources that were particularly helpful for you?
2: Yeah, so there there were a lot of different things I read. Um, pretty much, if there was any book on personal finance uh, that I saw in the library or whatever, I, I would pick it up. You know, a, a lot. Most of it wasn't very practical for somebody aiming at early retirement. You know, it's generic advice of, you know, somebody aiming for a, a 65-year-old retirement. But um, there was a website, like Early Retirement Forum,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, the uh, Boggleheads Forum. Um, you know, later, after we were already sort of financially independent, you see some, some uh, great sites like Mr. Money Mustache, Early Retirement Extreme, um, JLCollinsNH.com.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did in, in kind of pursuing it, it's interesting with, with regard to the personal finance literature that that's always the. Uh, that's always kind of the trick that that I found cuz when i was younger i consumed a lot of personal finance literature and i i thought oh i'm doing great uh, i'm saving 15% of my income obviously so therefore i'm i'm on track i don't have any debt you know i'm investing well so therefore i'm on i'm on you know i'm on good shape i'm in good shape toward reaching my goals uh, but sometimes I feel like I got a little gypped uh, because if I had found someone who'd give me the ideas, you know, if I had read uh, Jacob Lund Fisker's book when, <laughs> when I was in my teens, I would have saved 75 or 80% of my income. Uh, and so I'm so glad that some of those resources are coming out now and are, are more and more prominent and are being more and more accepted. Uh, and then I feel like, man, what did I miss? And somehow you got something that I didn't get ten or fifteen years ago because we were both reading the same books, and somehow you had the goal and figured out how to make it happen, and I just didn't even think of it as being a possibility.
2: Well, you know, we all we all come to it in our in our own way and in our own time. Um, you know, the the question is, you know, are we able to kind of make the connection of you know, how do you break away from the mainstream?
0: Right. So you saved for ten years. Uh, how much? What what percentage of your income? You ever figured out what what percentage of your income you saved over that period of time?
2: Yeah, it, it was. Um, you no, know, in the beginning, it was it was less, but um, we hit we hit seventy ish percent in the later years, mm-hmm. and then um, in hindsight, the last three years were we were contributing one hundred percent. That's great. Um, you know, I just kind of broke the. Uh, Financial independence barrier before we actually left, and so we were able to save every penny that came in for a few years.
0: So you followed uh, Jacob's seven-year plan. Uh, if you if you if you contributed 100 percent for the last three years, you did about the, the seven-year plan like he talks about. Um, how did you do well, it?
2: Well, there there are basically three three pieces, right? Like if you look at any of um, either like the U.S. Census data or what um, does any analysis that looks at like kind of average spending for people? The three things that they spend the most money on are housing, transportation, and food.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we um, uh, we didn't own a car. We basically um, very carefully found the place that we lived, which was a small apartment apartment near university. It had all the great kind Of amenities nearby, we were blocked from the grocery store, a block from the farmer's market, a couple blocks from the library, uh, a couple blocks from the park, right? So we could walk everywhere, and we we're also on major um, public transportation routes for busing. So if we needed to get anywhere else, we could take a bus. And then uh, I I started biking to work um, somewhat, you know, I had three different routes I could take, they're somewhere between eight and 23 miles one way, and um. You know, it's kind of. At first, it wasn't that that. Uh, uh, you know, it took a while to become accustomed to it. But by the end, you know, if there's one thing I miss about having having my job was that I had that daily bike ride. Um, and then, you know, now that we have basically our transportation costs way down and our housing costs way down, um, we started basically working through uh, how do we spend as little money as possible on food and. What we, you know, Winnie basically, um, you know, she she picked a couple cookbooks, like a, a French cookbook and an Italian cookbook, and mm-hmm. she just work, started working through them. And, um, you know, her the quality of, of the food that she prepared just got better and better. And eventually we're just like, why are we going to go to a restaurant when the food we can have at home is is of this quality? And when, when you get to that point where those three things basically become uh, kind of, a low percentage of of your budget, or a low percentage of your income, is it becomes quite easy to save a large percentage of income. I'm
0: glad you bring out the food thing. I've observed if you, if you look at most of the cuisines of at least ethnic uh, ethnic, uh, excuse me, ethnicities or uh, countries that are known for their cuisine, if you think about it, it's very likely that their cuisine was not just by the rich. Uh, so the the you know, Italian cuisine or French cuisine uh, or Chinese cuisine is not just because this is what the, the rich people ate. This is probably what most of the people ate. And there is a cultural treasure in looking to see how did people eat in, a, in an affordable way. A loaf of wonderful French bread fresh out of the oven <laughs> – Costs about fifteen or twenty cents worth of ingredients to make, but you have to make it and you have to do it right to get the same experience. Or you know, an Italian pasta dish—the pasta is not that expensive. So, but you have, but learning how to spice it up comes with the skill. So you can either go and buy it and hire somebody to cook for you, or you can learn to do it yourself and 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 recreate with skill what most people would have to spend money on.
2: And you know, Chinese eat uh, the. We are part of the meat, so it's really cheap.
1: <laughs> right, right.
2: Well, you know, and one of the one of the popular posts on, on Go Curry Cracker is um, about about making bread. Um, you know, you can go buy this artisan loaf of bread at like the farmers market or or a specialty market for six or seven dollars,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or you make it home, yeah, for a, a few pennies. Right, and uh, we have a whole post about how how we basically made this fantastic bread for close to fruit
0: yeah I'll have to check that out and read it I haven't read that post of yours, but I had the same experience I read on it was reading on some frugality blog and they were talking about how easy it was to make French bread and they had the i think it was French bread and they had their ingredients and it was basically just flour salt and water i guess maybe a little bit of yeast or whatever it was and that was it that was the whole ingredients and i made i think four or five loaves and it was delicious right out of the oven and the cost was just pennies absolute pennies so that's uh that's great now and uh, winnie i like your point about the chinese cuisine we we often we also often forget about that in the u.s culture one of the things I, i haven't learned how to cook chinese food but i love to eat it and one of the things that i enjoy you guys are in china now you're in taiwan right Taiwan. Okay, so I haven't been to Taiwan, but I uh, went to China one time. We'll go to the street markets, and you see all of just these amazing, uh, to me, weird foods. And you think, wow, you can eat that, you can eat that, you can eat that. And you see how, uh, especially in Asian, Asian cuisine, you know, a lot of times the meat is chopped up very small, so we're in the, in the U.S., we'll have a, a steak for dinner, and you need a big nice cut of meat, but uh, if you're only using little bits of meat to flavor the dish, I mean you can use the you can use the jowls of the pig to be that meat source and stretch it a lot farther. <laughs> so that's uh, that's a neat a neat observation. How so once you left, do you have any plans to ever return to the US or you guys think we're gonna be international forever?
2: No, we'll return to the US um, you know we we have a baby on the way.
0: Congratulations!
2: And, uh, thank you. Um, and one of the things that we we would like to do is you know kind of RV around to all the national parks. Okay. Um, and so we'll we'll be back in the U.S. I don't know if, if that'll be like a permanent destination or just just a trip that we do, but we'll be back.
0: So far, South uh, Central America, and uh, you also said Southeast Asia or Central America, and then you flew straight to Taiwan.
2: Yeah, we flew straight to Taiwan. Um, so, you know, t- together um, we've we've been to about forty different countries. But the you know since since I left work, we basically uh, have been doing this very slow form of travel, and I think we've been to like six or seven. Um, but Mexico for a long period, um, with Guatemala, Belize, and then and then over to Taiwan.
0: What have you learned about how much it actually costs you to live this slow travel lifestyle?
2: Well, it could cost a lot less than we pay now, um, but uh, we basically live a very luxurious lifestyle for about three thousand dollars a month. Wow! Um, you know that that includes that, thats everything. Um, and you know, we we sort of set up place, set up. You know, we go to a new place. We, If we like it, we'll find a longer-term rental. And then we usually get kind of immersed in the local culture, local, um, you know, if there's something educational that we can study in that place, we'll do so. Like So we studied Spanish, I'm studying Chinese, when he's been studying oil painting. Um, and you know, we, we just kind of, we, we live there for a while. And then when we're ready, we we go on to the next place. And when you do kind of that, that live local, um, slow travel, sort of style. It, it costs us less than what we were, what we would pay for the equivalent in the U.S. By far.
0: What do you think is the primary difference that drives the the lower cost? Is it the the cost of housing? Is it the cost of taxes? That what would you from living? Because you you came from Seattle, right? Yeah. So what would you say is the primary difference between why is it so expensive to live in the United States versus uh, some of the other places that so far you've traveled?
2: Um, let's see here. You know, it, for for the for the exact same thing, uh, everything costs more in the U.S. Um, so even even yeah yeah. We, you know, when we were in our heavy savings, when we were in our heavy saving mode, we were we were spending only about three thousand dollars in Seattle too. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, we live a much 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 more luxurious lifestyle now. Um, like we literally eat two to three meals a day at restaurants every day
1: and,
2: um, but the the cost of real estate is much higher in the u s and so rent is higher, and all of the businesses paying rent like restaurants um, have to charge higher prices, and the cost of labor is substantially higher and so those two things make make everything effectively more expensive like in the in the u s people people go for businesses go for massive scale to reduce costs your Walmart your Costco mm-hmm. you know. um, in a lot of sort of Central America Mexico Taiwan you have uh, people go the other direction you know it'll be an individual owned store where you'll see four generations of people um, hanging out and living in the shop
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, so a bowl of noodles is very cheap it's because you know, grandma opened the business forty years ago, and the whole family's still running it.
0: Right. I've wondered about this issue because I've, uh, my wife and I enjoy enjoy traveling, and to me, it seems like there's a bit of a nuance uh, between it. And it seems to me like the experience that you have of traveling in the U.S. or traveling in another place will depend on the type of traveling that you're doing. And it seems as though different regions of the world have different expenses. And so the example that I think of is, I think you're right about uh, rental costs. It seems if you come to the U.S., and especially in a large city, your rental costs are higher. You know, rental costs in New York City is dramatically diff- different than Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, or, you know, so you've got to deal with your regional preferences. Uh, but so that is one thing, but the other thing just seems to be labor costs. So there are things in the U.S. that are substantially cheaper than abroad. Uh, in my observation, things like uh, vehicles. Most places in the world, uh, even in places that uh, are have a have a lower per capita income. Uh, the cost of acquiring and maintaining a car is 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 extremely high as compared to the cost of acquiring and maintaining a car in the United States. Now, it's still a big expense, but uh, it's, it's, you can get a good car for a few thousand bucks, and the cost of, main, of operating it is not, not such a big deal. But when you switch to things like labor-intensive things, the prices in restaurants uh, uh, would be a good example, the labor costs are so high that I remember traveling in Hong Kong. It seems like everybody in Hong Kong eats out two to three meals a day. Uh, nobody cooks and because the cost of eating out is just extremely low, uh, lower labor costs, and the kitchens are not set up in such a way that you know every, it's small, so it's a little harder to have this massive kitchen. So you, if you're willing to adjust with the regional differences, then I think you could probably live a frugal and fulfilled life wherever. But the key would be knowing what's important to you and knowing, you know, hey, we're foodies, so the the beautiful restaurants to eat out—that's important to us. So then we're going to pull back in another place. Uh, so I'll be interested to continue watching your expenses as you as you continue traveling and see if they adjust or they change as you're in different regions. I've noticed you've stayed out of Western Europe, for example. Was that intentional, or, or you just haven't gotten around to it yet?
2: Yeah, we haven't gotten around to it, but but it's conscious, right? Um, people have to go through a mental. A mental transition when they go from earning a paycheck and to living off their investments, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we we've saved enough where we could go to Western Europe, but we wanted to kind of make that uh, you know jumping off the ledge sort of thing right uh, at, as shallow as possible, and so we started out in places that we knew we were going to cost us, and then we'll work our way over to to uh, to Europe whenever we get. There.
0: Right. And I think it's brilliant that you have that flexibility. And that, that can bring – you know, especially as you get used to living off of a portfolio, uh, there will be fluctuations in the value of the portfolio as time goes on. And it certainly – if you can adjust your expenses based upon your actual experience of your portfolio, it can make a huge difference. And I think the same thing for all of us. You know, I tell my wife uh, in our – we're still in the accumulation phase of our lives. We're not, yet, uh, we're not yet financially independent, but I talk with her and we just talk about there's no reason for us to cut back on the fun and the joy of life. Uh, we, you know, I don't know if I'll make it to 10 years from now, but I don't have any desire to try to go and tour Scotland right now or go go to the UK and, and, and go to London. Uh, we enjoy traveling in the less expensive parts of the world now, and so we can still satisfy the, the desire for travel or the desire to experience new things. Uh, and then later, as we accumulate more and more assets, and, so, and it's a lot easier out of the surplus to go to the more expensive parts of the world, then I think that's when we'll start. We'll start doing that. So you've got an amazing amount of flexibility there. And I think that's a really valuable financial strategy that we don't talk enough about.
2: You know, I, so I, I I've been to I don't know exactly forty some countries, and you know, I've, I've been to Western Europe. Um, but if my my favorite places that I've been is like, one of them is sandal. Is like Guatemala, and it just so happens that it's also incredibly dirt cheap, right? It's just the the quality of life there and the the natural environment are incredible, and I loved it, right? Um, Paris is nice, um, but if I were to choose like a long term place to live, I I think I'd be more towards Guatemala than Paris, right? And it's not not because of the pricing, just because uh, the quality of life is so great.
0: Do you factor currency fluctuations into your planning at all at this point? I would assume that your portfolio, being from the U.S., is probably primarily dem- denominated in U.S. dollars. Have you factored exchange rates and currency fluctuations into your planning at all?
2: Not really. Um, don't really worry about it. Uh, like um, when we spent, I don't know, almost nine months in Mexico last year, and during that time, I think the uh, the peso fell against the dollar like ten percent. You know, so we were paying ten percent more at the end of the trip than we were in the beginning. But yeah, it's ten percent of a of a pretty low number already, so we didn't really worry about it.
0: What strategy did you use as far as accumulating uh, accounts? Did you, and especially with retiring early, did you fund retirement accounts? Did you fund uh, taxable accounts? Uh, did you buy real estate? Did you buy mutual funds? What investment strategy did you pursue while working through to financial independence?
2: Uh, all of that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good. Yeah,
2: and uh, you know some of it better than others, but um, the, if, if you're going to save. Enough, you know, basically twenty-five times your annual expenses um, in less than ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, you you have to use taxable accounts. Um, there, there's just you, the legal limits for how much you can put in tax-deferred accounts prevent you from saving enough there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so, I I put money into the 401k first. Um, we funded a uh, HSA. Um, Later, when that became an option to work, and uh, then it was everything into taxable accounts.
0: And so, at this point, are you drawing down on your taxable accounts? Are you doing uh, uh, like a like um, uh, a Roth conversion strategy? What are you doing right now for your uh, for your tax planning?
2: Yeah, so uh, probably the most popular post on Go Career Cracker is never pay taxes again.
0: <laughs> Walk uh, us through that one.
2: Yeah, so. So there are basically um, four things that we do. You know, four rules to follow, which I'm probably going to forget them right now. But you know, rule number one, you know, is a uh, is be lazy. Um, don't work for a living because right? there's basically um, you know, social security taxes and such. There's no way to avoid those when you're when you're working. Um, then um, I don't know somewhere in there. There's there's live well for less. You know, is this. We don't. We don't own a car. We don't own a three thousand square foot house with an ocean view. Right? We, but but we live. We live very well on, on much less than what it would cost to own those things. And by keeping your annual spending low, and therefore your required income low,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: you are able to pay next to nothing in taxes. Um, and then we try to live primarily off of uh, dividends and long term capital gains because the it's like the u s government wants you to retire early and live off of of those forms of investments
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, so you, you effectively pay pay zero tax when you're able to live on less than like seventy thousand dollars a year or so as a as a married couple um you know so we 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 basically then um, follow those three things and then we try to minimize future taxes by uh, following two strategies and that's Roth IRA conversions. So we're taking um, my 401k and then slowly converting that into a Roth IRA Um, because our sort of earned income is so low, we're allowed to to roll over up to 20k total uh, a year in in total money from the IRA into a Roth at zero tax. And then that money will be later taken out tax free. And then uh, we also harvest capital gains. So last year, I sold um, something like a forty thousand dollars gain, and then we invested it, you know, immediately in a in another fund. And that forty k was effectively tax free as well, and now tax free forever.
0: How did you learn about tax planning?
2: Yeah. Um, I did my own taxes for a decade. And, um, there, there's a, you know, there, there are great tools. Like you can pay somebody three, an accountant $300 to do your taxes mm-hmm. and, they'll, you, and you'll never, they'll, they'll give you a bill that so you owe this much or you get this much of a refund. And they'll give you some advice, usually probably buy a house and you will never learn anything. Um, you can use a tool like TurboTax and it'll walk you through, and it'll ask you some questions and give you some clues, um, but again, you probably won't learn very much. But when you get down and actually uh, go through all the forms yourself by hand and read the uh, instructions and follow the you know, documents that the instructions refer to, you start to really figure out, like, wait a second. you know, If I modify what I'm doing here in this way, then this becomes tax-free. Or if I do this other thing, I can get a tax refund. And when you when you kind of build up your knowledge over a long period of time, like in my taxes for ten years, it all just kind of became clear. And then some of the ideas in general, um, you know, I I paid attention to like the Bobblehead forum. And through there, you know, pe- people ask you know, kind of be- beginner investors, they'll ask questions. And I, I love seeing beginner questions because um when you're old and crotchety like me, you kind of assume you know a lot of things. And then when you see it through the beginner's eyes, you realize you didn't know very much at all. And some of those questions kind of pointed me to, it, wait a second, if I, um, if I sell a stock with a big gain and, and not have to pay any tax on it, and then I buy something similar in the you know, same day, I've effectively gained, you know, harvested that gain forever. I never would have thought of that without, without having seen it on the floor.
0: Right. And I want to add one point, and I'm sure you could make this point, but it's something I've often heard, is that people often, when you describe – Tax gain harvesting. Uh, oftentimes, people say, "Well, doesn't that run afoul of the wash sale rule?" And there is a rule uh, colloquially known as the wash sale rule, which basically means that if you have a loss on an investment, you can't sell it and then purchase in order to take the loss and then purchase the same investment uh, at either lo- uh, the identical or the substantially equivalent investment in order to uh, in order to you know to take that loss. But the key that people often forget about is that only applies to losses. So at any point in time, you can go ahead and lock in a gain. And one of the major misconceptions that I see happening right now among uh, tax planning is that everyone's so excited about uh, harvesting tax losses, saying, "Okay, here's how we can figure out how to how to harvest these losses." But the problem is that every time you harvest a loss, in some ways, you're building up a higher deferred gain. And so effective tax planning is, is about moderating that gain, taking your losses when you're able to take them in a way that makes sense, but also ratcheting up those gains to increase your cost basis. Uh, so if you can increase your cost basis by selling the investment uh, taking the gain, recognizing it on your, recognizing it for tax purposes, and then buying exactly the same investment. If you're able to control that, you can wipe out a massive amount of your tax liability by doing it intelligently. But it's not something that really someone else can do for you because everything is based upon what do you need, what are your spending, what is your limits, and those will change every year based upon what your income is and what your makeup the makeup of your income is. So I'm glad to hear you uh, correcting that and, and talking about that for people.
2: And that's where. Um you know, doing doing taxes takes me a couple hours. You know, mm. and you try to I try to do them before the end of the year, right? So rather than April fifteenth, twenty fifteen, I do our taxes in December of this year, um, and then I know what to what to do with the portfolio at the end of the year. But one other, um, technically there there is a rule that that uh, if you sell a stock or a fund harvest the game, and then immediately buy back the exact same fund, technically, um, the IRS does have a rule that if you're you're performing an action specifically for the purpose of uh, impacting your taxes, they could decide um, through a review that that they think that that action can be wiped out. Mm they, as far as I know, it's never been done for tax gain harvesting, but, um, I try to avoid say buying and selling the exact same thing, the same day. Right. but the, the way to kind of, the way to kind of work your way around that is if you buy a, um, say like an index tracking fund and it just happens to track a different index. Mm-hmm. Right. So you could, you could say, uh, sell an S&P 500 fund and then buy something that tracks like. Small stock, small stock index, or something, right? And um, that is they considered a substantially different, uh, a substantially different investment, right? Would you, if you were to say like sell Berkshire Hathaway, hard to begin, buy Berkshire Hathaway the same day, the IRS could get a stick of thinking about it,
0: right? You're referring to the substance over form doctrine that any transaction that's specifically for the purpose of of tax planning. Technically, they're going to look at what's the actual substance of the transaction, not just what it was the, actual, the form of the, the, the transaction, right?
2: Um, that sounds correct. I'm not sure exactly what they call it anymore, but... Um
0: Sorry i 'm that, 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 throwing financial plan lingo at, <laughs> lingo in that's what that 's what the doctrine is that i 'm aware of i 'm not aware of a wash I could be mistaken so if i 'm mistaken, um, you know, somebody can let us know in the in the comments but uh, you are you are one hundred percent correct is that there is a doctrine that basically says that uh, the all tax rules are bound by what is the economic substance of a transaction. Uh, even if that actual substance varies a little bit from the legal form, uh, and then if in, if listeners are interested, uh, check out episode forty one radicalpersonalfinance dot com slash forty one, and I mentioned that doctrine in there and kind of go into it a little bit in detail. But you are right; it's a, it's an important point to keep in mind is that you always want to have, you always want to have, you want to be careful to avoid some of those. Uh, some of those pitfalls with tax planning, and that is a that it's so easy to avoid, but uh, just by doing something that's slightly different, and you have your uh, you have your evidence uh, illustrating uh, illustrating your point. Um, you did you released on your on your site your 2013 tax return equivalently, um, basically, right? Yeah, I put the I put our
2: 2013 1040 up there um, to show something effective. Of like ninety ninety some thousand dollars
1: in
0: adjusted gross income and zero tax. Um, So I'm going to repeat that because I'm going to repeat that again because over the connection it was just a little crackled. Ninety something thousand dollars of gross income and zero dollars of tax. That is correct. (laughs) How did you do it?
2: Um, So it actually. uh, the principles I mentioned, I don't have a job, so there's no there's no social security. Um, we get most of our income from uh, dividend and long-term capital gains.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So those are for our level of income taxed at 0%. And because our income is considered low, about $60,000 of maybe $60,000 of that $90,000 of imaginary income. It was harvested along long the capital gain, and it was doing the Roth conversion. So I, I created um, income on paper that was effectively just moving around that we've we already existed. But it eliminated future, future tax. We do the future tax. Um, and it just, the $90,000 number is just roughly what the... What you can legally earn from uh, investment income, and you
0: know, still considered bad but pay tax. I think it's awesome, and I'm so glad you put the actual return up so that people could see how it works. And in the if you can control your expenses, there's a huge, huge opportunity. So I love the early retirement, you know, financial independence community because one of the key components of this community is having control over expenses and learning how to live well for less. And one of the things that's ironic about the way that U.S. income taxes work is that you are penalized for productivity. And it's not really a political statement, although I don't don't mind getting into politics. It's just simply a fact, is that the more productive you are, because we tax income, the more productive that you are, the more your penalty is, the more productive that somebody is at creating income, uh, the, the higher the tax rates, the higher the tax base, the higher the, the total amount of tax. And we, uh, as a society, we've decided that that is morally just to have that type of, of income tax system. It's not the system that I would choose, but that's what we as a society have decided. But what it opens up is that because everything is based upon this class warfare, this idea of, uh, well, we're supposed to penalize the rich, and then the middle class, we're supposed to give everything to the middle class, there's kind of a sweet spot, and you've hit it exactly with your expenses. If you can control your expenses to a moderate amount, and you can increase your income to a substantial level, you can avoid a massive amount of tax, but not if you need the Income for consumption. I was doing some. uh, I was having a conversation with a with an early retiree the other day, and I was illustrating uh, how this person doesn't need a a substantial amount of income from their income. And I was I was showing them how they can shelter uh, basically 100 thousand bucks in tax deferred accounts, and then how they could pursue some strategies to uh, to shelter their money going forward. But all of that is based upon not needing the money to spend now. If you need the money to spend now, this is this is where you're in the worst possible situation. If you need to spend the money now on lifestyle, then that means you need to earn it. And so, the high earners and the high spenders are the ones who pay a massive amount of the tax. Uh, but you can. But what I love about your return and, and, and your story is you're illustrating how you can get good tax planning on your side, and it can massively increase your your time scale. Uh, so I thank you for working so hard. It's not easy to put numbers out there. It's not easy to work through the detailed definition. I thank you for putting the information out there for people.
2: like The politics and stuff aside is that the main thing is, is what, it all, what it all comes down to, where, where everything comes from, is just being able to live what you consider a wonderful life, it's something that you're more than happy with for very long money and uh, most of that is just what you've become accustomed to and, and how you choose to view the world. Like, like, um, uh, and with too many, so 99% of people in the United States, that's, that's like, um, saying, I hate baseball and apple pie, mm-hmm. like, um, which I, which I kind of do, but
0: me too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. But, um, like, you know, when I was living in Seattle, uh, if I wanted to go do anything. You know? I wanted to go um, get some ice cream at the grocery store. Most people, you know, say, okay, well, I'll walk up to the garage, I'll start the car, I'll drive 10 minutes to the grocery store, find a parking space, walk inside, you know, oh, crap, like, I'm going to get some gas, you know, so I'll stop at the gas station and You know, and they do this whole, like, 40-minute journey, you know, and, and then the oil light comes on. of the I'm like, oh, that's right, you can change the oil, I'll schedule that, you know, blah goes off. And I walk downstairs across the street, the just can go back home, you know, it's five minutes. And, you know, um, by design, life to not have the car, it will just hit on the car. It's, my life picks out because I never have to get in the car, I never have to park, I never have to get gas, I never have to change the oil, I never have to check all that baggage that comes with owning something.
0: I It's a powerful concept because a lot of times what happens is, especially in our society is that we don't necessarily consciously choose. And certain things are sewn into us and, and, and put into us by other people, usually unintentionally, I think. But, for example, in the United States, we have a car culture, a car-centric culture. So if you're a young person, it's often, usually it's, maybe it's your father. A lot of times your father admires a nice car. And if your father admires a nice car, then you want to emulate your father. And so you naturally take on that desire and that attraction for cars. And that may be for uh, a beautiful, fast you know, BMW M5, or it may be for a big, you know, giant four-wheel drive pickup truck with mud tires, or it may be a sleek, fast, uh, you know, imported Honda racing car, or whatever it is. And what happens is that oftentimes we don't fully grasp at a young, uh, at a young age, we don't fully grasp The impact of certain things that we feed, so we feed that appetite. When I was a kid, I fed the appetite with magazines, car magazines, and four wheeler magazines, and these. And and as we feed that appetite, it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And then we feel like, well, this is what I've got to do to to be happy, Uh, or whether it's things like boats, or whether it's things like you know any hobby or something that we feed, and. You know me personally, I would like to leave every person free to live their life as they want, um, but i 've found that if I actually look and do some self examination and understand why is it that i 'm so committed to this you know this love of the car, what is this where does this come from it wasn 't something that I actually went and chose and said this would serve me and serve my goals and be beneficial to me it 's largely something that's that 's influenced into me, and so by rejecting that and seeing that you know what i 'd rather have the free time. To not have to deal with, you know, I was dealing with fixing my car this weekend, and I'd rather have the free time to not have to deal with the car, and I'd rather just take a taxi when I need one and ride the bus and walk. Uh, if you can right. set your lifestyle up on that, it's powerful because you can take back control, and that, that taking back control leads, I believe, to taking back control in every area and leads to long-term goal achievement. Don't
2: forget the bicycle.
0: Right. I forgot. <laughs> my bicycle was stolen a few months ago, and I haven't gotten around to buying a new one. Um, so I forgot about the bicycle. I need to get, a, I need to get another one.
2: need on the car thing, like I, I'm kind of you know, I'm a cool new one in, in my family. My mom has five brothers, four of them in mechanics. My grandfather was in mechanics, you know, like, you know, I have the mechanics, and I had the Ford sort of Mustangs. They had two up and everything, and drove motorcycles, whatever. And remember well, I don't remember. My father told me many years later, but sometime when I was 12 or so, um, he was changing the oil, and he's like, "Hey, I'm going to teach you to change the oil today." And I said, "Something like, Dad, when I'm older, I'll pay somebody to do that." And so I was the I was the only person like the whole time of anywhere that doesn't know how to
0: change oil. <laughs> That's, uh, it, I used to have the same uh, same exact thought, and I regret it now because I didn't learn the skills that I needed to learn. Uh, and I've had to, as an adult, go back and say, why was I such a dum-dum? Now I needed to learn those learn those skills. But I don't think there... Uh, one, one comment on the car thing. I don't think that, th- that these things are not mutually exclusive, meaning that you don't have to walk away from an enjoyment of automobiles to just to, to retire early. And, I, and, and an example that would occur to me is... I think that very few people necessarily love commuting. So they can, you can implement the lifestyle that you've talked about where you don't need to drive a, a four-door sedan every day and still indulge in enjoyment of cars. But if you'll free up the money that you spend on the four-door sedan that you destroy every day with an hour on the road commuting – then may, and you can if you can make an adjustment there, that can open up the kind of thing where you can take a trip to Europe and you can rent a beautiful brand new you know BMW M5 or M6 or whatever they're doing whatever they're on these days a fast car and you can rent it and you can enjoy the autobahn or you can go and you can uh, you can lease a beautiful uh, you know you go to Spain and you can lease a beautiful Aston Martin or Ferrari for a month and the cost of doing those things is really not so significant when they're done for a temporary period of time. So go and lease a Ferrari for a week or for a month or something like that. Get that experience. The vast majority of middle-class people will never get there because they're destroying their money with the four-door sedan that, that, that we put 30,000 miles a year on to to cover our commute. They're not incompatible. What,
2: what it comes back to, I, I think, is um, I, I, I try to follow the... the the philosophy. If there's no one right way to live.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, so you know, spend your money, spend your money however you like. You know, everybody has those choices. And, and I don't think there's any way that's better than that is. But if early retirement is your goal, then you know, saving upwards of 70% of your income is the goal. And if you can, um, you can save a lot and have a, a, a coffee, then fantastic. And right. maybe you'll we'll spend less money, you know, somewhere else. Like we, we do spend more on food. Like maybe you'll, maybe you'll spend less on food and more on car. And we, we both got there.
0: Right. Absolutely. So let's switch gears. And I, the other thing that you've been writing recently about on your blog, which is a, this is a great interest of mine. Uh, is about medical costs. And when I've talked with people who who are, whether that's traditional retirement, uh, you know, the 60, 65 age retirement, or whether that's early retirement, one of the major fears that people have is how to handle any potential healthcare costs What has been your experience since uh, retiring, and what have you practically done, uh, for example, with health insurance coverage, uh, things like that? And what has been your experience with handling that? Because I know you've recently had uh, some some pretty significant, you know, medical uh, uh, events going on. Procedures, yeah.
2: So um, when we when we left the U.S. two years ago, we we purchased a high deductible health plan. And uh we paid the premium on that for like eleven months and then we got rid of it. Um and we've uh we went to the dentist in Mexico, I went to the doctor in Mexico, um let's see here. We we've both been to the doctor in, in Taiwan and um we then we we uh went through a whole process of uh, in vitro fertilization here in, in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So that that's how we that's how we're going to have a baby. Um, all of that, everything we just paid cash, and uh, just as a kind of interesting thing, like have. Have you, have you? Or do you know anybody who's been to the emergency room in the U.S. recently?
0: I just yeah just had some friends go there recently. A three day hospital stay. Just last night, was talking with a friend. Last night, three day hospital stay. Went to the emergency room with. Uh, wound up being appendicitis. Uh, the hospital bill was eighty one thousand dollars.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we we went to the emergency room the other night. Um, you know, saw the doctor. Had a couple tests um, left after about an hour, the total bill 30
1: bucks.
2: (laughs) So when, when a, a system is set up in such a way that you you can't know the prices in advance. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can't can't compare prices between places and you, you don't get a bill for like two weeks to six months later because of all the processing through the, the different insurance systems and whatnot. Um, you end up with a bill like eighty one thousand dollars for for you know, for whatever the, the case was. Um, when in Taiwan, at least it's a it's a single payer healthcare care system. Um, I can I can ask in advance how much am I going to have to pay for this. I pay in advance for the procedure, and uh, I can make decisions. You know, like is that worth it or not? And with all that transparency. Um, you know, and it just uh, effectively comes out to be a more efficient system. Thirty bucks.
0: Wow! And the strange thing about it is that that eighty-one thousand dollar bill. Uh, my friend was looking at what the insurance company actually paid, and so eighty-one thousand. What was what was billed, but the negotiated rate for the insurance company that they actually paid was ten thousand dollars. Right. And so you have this just nuts differential between these things, and that's what makes it so so confusing and so complicated. How much did your dental work in Mexico cost, and how much is the in vitro fertilization process in Taiwan costing you?
2: Um, so we let's see here. Um, I don't I don't remember what the den, what the dental trip in in in, in Mexico five hundred pesos. So like thirty five bucks, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, I went to, I had like a a high fever and and stuff, and and, uh, I kind of knew I had bronchitis. And I I went to the doctor in Mexico, and I think it was three bucks. Wow. Um, You know, but then, of course, I had to pay for the prescription, right? Which, you know, some antibiotics, and I think that was like $8. You know, so they... They they get you on the way out is basically how they get you, right? So <laughs> three bucks for the doctor, eight bucks for the pills.
0: Wow.
1: Um,
2: and yeah, go ahead.
0: I was gonna say how about the IVF?
2: Okay, so so we kinda chose Taiwan for that uh, by doing some cost research and, and then Winnie's Winnie's from here, so uh, we kind of get the, the double bonus of being able to, to see family and whatnot while we're here. But um, I think the the online calculator uh, that I used for estimating the U.S. price was something like thirty-five thousand dollars. It would have cost us,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and in Taiwan, that cost us about seven.
0: Is your sense that that is because of the general subsidy, uh, meaning that the general taxpayer, uh, the tax base and the ta- and the general tax that's being collected is being uh, distributed, and so therefore the cost is lower in that way? Or is it generally, do you feel, in your experience, do you feel it's more just the cost of the care is lower, the actual uh, cost is lower?
2: It's the, the thing is the cost of the care is lower, right? Because uh, we're, we're effectively operating outside of the subsidized system. Okay. Um, right, like, if I had Taiwan-based insurance, um, I would be, I would be inside the national health plan. We basically um, like, hey, you're you're the white guy, um, you know, come talk to us over here. Okay, this is what it's going to cost. You need to pay in advance. You need to pay cash. You know, like, okay. Right, like I, as part of the process, I had to get like a a chest X-ray and an EKG and stuff because. I, I, w- I had to go under um, anesthesia for part of the process. And the, just like that portion of chest X-ray EKG, you know, I walk in. Uh, it takes like 10 seconds to do both of those things individually. There's a nurse waiting there to, to run the X-ray machine and another nurse ready to run the EKG. I go back to the doctor. He's already got the results on his computer. And they're like, okay, like, yeah, you're healthy enough to go under anesthesia. see so the mom. Right. I, I, walk, I walk downstairs. The box or something
0: like that. wow it's definitely something I'm slow to talk much about um, health insurance and health care systems i in I studied for a uh, financial planning designation called a registered health underwriter designation as part of that i had I read this like about a 500-page textbook on the history of the healthcare industry in the United States and the managed healthcare industry, and what it opened up to me was how many moving parts there are, and what a complicated, um, complicated situation it is. And so, at this point, I've kind of you know I have my own opinions about how I would like to live, but I've kind of set aside any. Any of my opinions for the general public and just said well here's how let me just look for the ways that I can work my way through the system and I think that uh, medical tourism is a tremendous uh, is a tremendous opportunity and as uh, I've worked with a couple of people who are setting up uh destination uh, medical tourist uh, facilities in Central America, and I think that you know when people will often get, when they have a serious, when they need something, it's not uncommon for people who with the means to get on an airplane and go to another city where there's a, a well-known health clinic, and in a world where I can get on an airplane and be in Costa Rica, or be in Nicaragua, or be in Guatemala in two or three hours, it's really no different for me doing that versus flying to Cleveland, um, but yet if the cost can be massively lower, uh, it's certainly worth pursuing. I agree. So uh, as far as last kind of th- thought I had last question that I was curious about and then uh, any that you you can share anything else that you would like to share but have you thought about now that you're expecting a baby have you thought about Doing any kind of fun like international arbitrage with uh, with your future son or daughter as far as where they're born and citizenship and some of those some of the fun things that you could do. Do you plan to have a baby abroad uh, in Taiwan for Taiwanese citizenship? Have you researched any of that stuff yet?
2: Well, it, it'll it'll have U.S. and Taiwanese citizenship um, just through parents the parents. Okay, um, neat. But we 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 had talked about like, the trying. Trying to get, you know, if it would make sense to have another passport, mm-hmm. another, another citizenship, and um, it turns out that there just aren't very many countries anymore that give citizenship on birth. Um, you know, the let's see here, uh, Australia and New Zealand did up until about ten years ago. Um, most of most of Europe has basically changed their laws, and so um, just by being born there, you don't get citizenship. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so you're kind of looking at, like, Mexico, the U.S., and Canada, probably the three biggest countries that still have that option. What anyway, well, we, well, we were thinking originally, like, it'd be great to, say, have, like, a baby in Spain, or Italy, you know, get the EU passport, um, our child could work across Europe later if they chose to, you know, or a Commonwealth passport from Australia, Zealand, Canada, UK, mm-hmm. um, and then have the option to work across the Commonwealth, but... Um, neither of those options really look viable anymore. But I still have to do a
0: destination,
2: a destination birth still might be an
0: option. Interesting. It's such an interesting just thing to think about. It really is when you when you are free of the need to be in one specific place, it opens up a world of possibilities that that frankly I never considered when I was younger. And my wife and I talked about that with our we have a one year old son and we talked about that a little bit uh but uh, you know, I just thought through it, and it wasn't appropriate for our lifestyle at that time. But with your kind of traveling lifestyle at the moment, but at any rate, Taiwanese citizen, citizenship, and it sounds like uh, you'll both be. Your wife is multilingual, and sounds like you uh, are working on it. If you're studying Chinese, that'll be a tremendous advantage for uh, for your child as well. Thank
1: you.
0: Anything else? If you were going to let's let's close with this. If you were going to give an exhortation, an encouragement and a little bit of inspiration to other people who are interested in following a similar path to early retirement and who are interested in, in pursuing a similar lifestyle to, to, to the one that you've created, what would you share with others who are working on that path?
2: Um, so it's a lot easier and a lot faster than most people think. If you're accustomed to the, uh, save 10% retire at 65 um, by making a few relatively minor adjustments to life, learning to love the bicycle, learning to cook great food at home and uh, learning to be happy in a smaller space where you can walk everywhere instead of driving a car. Um, you can get there in just a few short years and then everything, uh, op- everything in the world effectively opens up to you. So the, the rewards of spending over the less now um, give you
0: the world. Well said. Thank you for the work that you do on your blog, which is gocurrycracker.com. I appreciate it because I know it's not, it would probably be easier and more fun to not have to write on a blog, but it's a valuable source of information and inspiration to other people. And I thank you for putting so much work into it because it really will help uh, many, many, many people uncover the strategies and the ideas and have the encouragement as they walk through their path, um, to, to be able to achieve it. Uh, what is, uh, I forgot to ask you this and uh, where does go curry cracker come from? Uh,
2: um, so our, you know, for our, for our honeymoon, uh, I think we spent about $0. We, uh, we, we went on a, what was it? A hundred, a hundred mile hike around, around Mount Rainier outside Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, you carry all your own food. um, You know, you you shower by uh, plunging into some glacial runoff. You Uh, cry
1: every night.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You cry every night. And, and, um, you know, it's not easy every day, right? You know, you're hiking hiking 10 miles a day up, you know, massive elevation gains and and whatnot. And we had these... um, these little curry crackers you know and that 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 Winnie had uh, had handmade with love and care and one mo- one day in a in a moment of delirium and frustration we were trying to find some motivation and we kind of looked at each other and said something like go 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 curry crackers <laughs> and uh, that's just that's kind of been you know any time that we need like a a moment of, of motivation or you know, something to basically say, like, hey, we can accomplish this and go forward. You know, that, that's, that's what we'll say to each other. And, you know, it'll just kind of, like, bring us back and, uh, and, and give us a, a little laugh and then push us forward again.
0: It's a memorable name. And uh, it's a <laughs> memorable name. I wanted to make sure we included that. Winnie, I, I feel like I neglected you. Uh, I apologize. Is there something that is, would you like to share uh, as we close here? Is there, would you like to share a, a bit of encouragement and inspiration for, for those who are listening from your perspective? I think my
1: husband talked about already.
2: So, yeah, I just just, took a few pills, so I feel a a little dizzy tonight. Understand. After bedtime, so
0: well, well, this this the kind of work that you guys have done, and to stay together and to commit to uh, commit to your goals does not happen unless you are united in it, and so it has to be a team effort uh, because if one spouse. Uh, you know, says we're going to go and you know we're going to go live on a sailboat or you know live in a tent in the woods, and the other spouse uh, says, "No, I need to. You know, I want to own a boat, but that's just for the for for the weekends." And and why can't we have a big house? The whole plan falls apart. So uh, that's why you
1: need an obedient Asian wife.
0: Sc- excuse me, I didn't quite hear that. Say that again, please.
2: That's why you need an obedient Asian wife.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> I got a feeling that you're a little. There's a little bit of a tongue in cheek there.
2: Yeah, and okay I? want to. I I, I, want refund. I, don't, I don't think that's. I don't think that was in the contract at the beginning, or it was in the contract maybe at the beginning, but I don't think you've been
1: following it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you guys learn? Uh, did you? Did you learn something as far as going through that? How did you, Jeremy? How did you? Was it your idea originally, your wife's idea? How did you talk together? And I wish maybe we would uh, let's explore that real quick. Um, how did you talk together and learn uh, how to be on the same page? What was the process?
2: Um, a- about the early retirement, right, and right. travel and more? right?
1: Right. Um, right.
0: That's a good question.
2: Um, you know, it's it's. Um, let's see. You know, travel like like if you if you look back at sort of like our individual goals from sort of before we met, mm-hmm. you know, see, seeing the world was, was one of them. Um, that that we that we shared and shared strongly, and uh, we both grew up in relatively low income environments and never really felt the need to strive for like consumer items and so on, and so like you know not having not having things that people consider needs that we we just never really missed them and so when you know when income started rising we were able to be like, hey, would I would I rather buy like I don't know a blender or go live go live in Thailand for a year? You know, you just kind of there was no question, and so it, it didn't it wasn't ever really like a a long conversation. It was just like, well, obviously, this is what we should do.
0: Interesting. It certainly is a, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, I've heard from, you know, from various readers. Well, and, and I've seen in forums and things like that. How did I, you know, how do I get my spouse on board with this idea? Uh, so it's a neat to hear that. I mean, I, it's good to hear that you guys were naturally aligned. I think that can make a lot of difference. Uh,
2: uh, you know, it, it, that kind of goes back to uh, it, if, if we didn't click on those things early on, like we, 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 yeah, we wouldn't be together.
0: Right.
1: Awesome.
2: And, you know, and it, and it was just kind of uh, uh, you know, a very—we you know, we were living in two different countries, speaking two different, different you know native languages and different cultures. And, we, and maybe we, that's why we get you
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> along. I don't understand what you're
0: saying. Yeah,
2: and yeah, when I said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to live frugally and travel the world?" You're like, "I don't understand." That. Yeah, I thought yeah, I, I thought you, I thought you said yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you confused you confuse <laughs> the language. I like it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I appreciate your making the time, and I thank you for the insight, and I thank you for the work that you're doing.
2: Yeah, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate it.
0: Normal people, extraordinary results, huh? Is there anything in their story that you or I couldn't do? Probably nothing. Well, I mean I didn't ask him exactly how much they were making. I know that he was a they're they're professionals, so but you and I could learn to do that. But the notice the guild, as Jacob uh Lundfisker and I figured out is a good word for it in uh using a permaculture word of guild is a good word for it to apply to financial planning. Notice the 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 trio of, of things, like he said, focusing on the biggest expenses, housing transportation and food. So what do you do? Number 1, housing. Try to find the least expensive housing option that is satisfactory for your needs. And if your needs are simple, then your solution that satisfies those will be simple, simpler. Think about it. You know, not enough people think about and locate their housing strategically because we live in such an automobile-centric culture. We're accustomed to just driving anywhere, and so that's where you, we have miles and miles of suburbs around every large city, and, and it's almost impossible when you live in the suburbs to not, to not have a car. But if you're willing to do as they did and live in the city, live in an apartment, you can be strategic about it. You can get yourself close to shopping, restaurants, grocery stores, libraries. You can get yourself uh, close to a main transit terminal, so where you're quickly on that main transit terminal. And especially if you're in a city where that's not so popular, I think you could do it anywhere. But there are some cities where, uh, in in the U.S. and around the world where people are much more tuned in to those ideas of how do I figure out a strategic location for for my business, uh, excuse me, for my house, Maybe more difficult, but there are many cities at which you could exploit that, and it's cheaper to if you can get rid of. So, a if you can get a good housing cost, low cost, small amount of stuff, inexpensive apartment. B if you can reduce or eliminate your transportation costs, that will free up so much money. And then, as I said, if you can reduce or eliminate your food, you can't eliminate your food costs. Excuse me, if you can reduce and right size your food costs, that can make a major difference. And sometimes that stuff can free up so much money for you to pursue other things that are important. Choose consciously. If you want a big house in the suburbs, go for it. If you want a big house on the water and a big four-wheel drive pickup truck, fine. But notice what your options are and make sure that you're going in knowing that my opportunity cost for this money is fill in the blank for what's right for you, right for you. I love to hear stories like that because it just illustrates how doable so many things are. And your results will vary depending on how hardcore you are. If you make more money than they did, probably do and spend less, you could do it faster. If you make less money and spend more, doesn't mean you can't do it; just going to do it slower. Custom design your own plan that will work for you. Consider also the medical tourism ideas. Uh, I'm not an expert on that area. I've read a couple of books on it, but. Uh, you know, some books from the library about people who people have written about it. But I got a feeling that stuff changes so much. I'd love to know if you if you know somebody who's an expert on medical tourism, I'd love to interview one. Uh, I don't know who to interview at this point. But if you know somebody that you've read, maybe they have a blog or a business in that market or they're really an expert. Uh, shoot me a note, Joshua, Radical dot com and let me know who they are. Or even better, get in touch with them and ask them to reach out to me for an interview. I would be thrilled to bring them on the show because I think that's a really valuable Resource uh, that we can learn together. I've intentionally stayed away from talking about most of the uh, healthcare issues just because it's an overwhelming, it's an overwhelming world, and people are so emotionally tied up And At some point, maybe I'll talk about it, but it's just it's about my least interesting thing to talk about. Uh, so, but medical tourism is something that I think has a lot of, of potential benefit, especially you know if you need a, an expensive root canal or something like that. Consider taking a trip abroad it may be worth it may not be worth it but a lot of those times those types of expenses are simply not covered with insurance and if it's not covered with insurance then why bother? Why not just go ahead and book yourself a trip to Thailand or Taiwan or, or Costa Rica or something like or Mexico and try to enjoy your experience a little bit. Uh, you got to be careful I have no experience in that world but I have known enough people who have done it successful to at least consider it successfully to at least consider it as a strategy. That's it for today. Be back with you tomorrow. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not and is not intended to be any form of financial advice. Please develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them, because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for
1: being here.